0: So before we start today, I have to make a confession I make this fairly often that I am a hypocrite. Uh, hi, my name is Chris, and I'm a hypocrite. Um, I do this often because I teach the Bible and uh, and when you teach the Bible, you're forced to talk about things that you yourself are not very good at. Uh, so I 'm given a choice. I can either teach the things that I've mastered, which means I would run out of content really, really quickly, or I can actually teach the Bible and own my hypocrisy. so uh, before we start, don't call me or text me this week and call me a hypocrite. I already know this, and I own it. Um, this is our final week of Fixer Upper. Uh, we are, we've are we been working alongside Nehemiah as he rebuilds his beloved and abused city. And this week, we're dealing with finishing touches and the big reveal. Um, if you've ever watched a design show, this is the psychology of the whole show. You know, by the 20-minute mark, you pretty much know what the room's going to look like. By 25 minutes, you know, they're setting all the little uh, finishing touches. They're hanging pictures on the wall. They're putting the decorative pillows and, and that one vase of dead sticks that's in every single room that I don't fully understand. Um, and so by that point, you know what the room's going to look like, and yet... You cannot leave the show until you watch them reveal, you know, to the family. There's times I've been late to fairly major events because I'm 20 minutes in and I, I I physically can't leave until I watch the wife cry when she sees her kitchen. It's just a it's a thing. So this is the real psychology of the show, that big reveal at the end. And uh, this personally is something I'm terrible at in my own home projects. I'm horrible at finishing up those last couple details. That would completely finish a job. My wife's going to say amen real loud here in a second. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at those last couple of things that would let you go, ah, 100% done. When Esther and I lived in uh, KCK, we remodeled the house we lived in like three times top to bottom in the course of the 11 years we lived there. The, the final time we actually did it as though we were going to live there forever. We finished it the way we wanted it. Um, the, every single room had been torn down to studs and redone. I mean, we we did the entire house. And then one day after hearing, you know, that a lot of people were selling their house for crazy amounts of money, the, the housing market was booming. I came home and decided we were we were going to sell. And uh, so I had a realtor friend over on a Thursday, and he kind of gave me a list of, of all the things that he thinks thought we should finish up. And so I spent Saturday and Sunday running all over the house, finishing up that one last little thing on each project that I'd done in the entire remodel. And we put the house on the market Monday morning. And it was sold by Monday night. And Esther was furious. She was like, two and a half days. It took you two and a half days to finish my whole house. You could have committed two and a half days at any time and had this thing completely done and finished. So basically, I, uh, I finished the house all up so that somebody else could enjoy it. But in fact, right now we remodeled our downstairs basement over the quarantine. And I'm like two pieces of baseboard and a light switch cover from being completely... Finished And it's it's still not done, but it's a sickness. I don't know. Well, this morning, um, our text chronicles Nehemiah's last couple tasks as he finishes this project. It includes one of my favorite aspects of remodel work, um, which we don't see often. But let's read it. We're in Nehemiah 7. If you're following along. After the wall was finished and I had set up the doors and the gates, the gatekeepers, singers and Levites were appointed. I gave the responsibility of governing Jerusalem to my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than most. I said to them, do not leave the gates open during the hottest part of the day, and even while gatekeepers are on duty, have them shut and bar the doors. Appoint the residents of Jerusalem to act as guards, everyone on the regular watch. Some will serve at sentry posts and some in front of their own homes. At that time, the city was large and spacious, but the population was small, and none of the houses had been rebuilt. So my God gave me the idea to call together all the nobles and leaders of the city, along with the ordinary citizens, for registration. I found the genealogical records of those who had first returned to Judah. This is what was written there. This is a much shorter passage than we've been doing. We've been doing almost whole chapters at a time. Uh, and normally I would finish this, but the rest of the chapter is a census that is mostly Jewish names. And so just for the sake of not butchering all those Jewish names, I decided to stop there. But this is Nehemiah wrapping up the project. We started this series with Nehemiah hearing that Jerusalem was sacked and the people were disgraced. And even though this wasn't a new problem, Nehemiah took uh, the realization that the city of David was destroyed very hard. He mourned and fasted, and most of all, he prayed that God would help him do something about it. We watched Nehemiah wait patiently for the perfect moment to go to Artaxerxes and ask Artaxerxes for permission and resources to complete the task of rebuilding. We rode with Nehemiah as he examined the damages on the back of a donkey and then captured the hearts of the leaders to do the work. We followed Nehemiah as he set everyone to work on the wall, each one focusing on the spot directly across from his own house first. We stood with Nehemiah as he faced off angry enemies when the wall was half built, instituting the trumpet call that would rally his people to fight for one another when the, as they worked to rebuild. We confronted oppression with Nehemiah as he fought to make sure that no one was left out of God's blessing because of the things that were done back before the wall was built. Last week, bread led us to persevere with Nehemiah as he was forced to resist distractions and threats and traps that were destined to draw him away before he hung the final doors securing the city. And finally this week, we're finishing the project and turning it back over to the homeowners. He says this, after the wall was finished, I had set up the doors and the gates, and the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. I gave the responsibility of governing Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, for he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. This is always a weird part of remodel projects for me, especially good-sized remodel projects, because I'm a remodeler, but I also like have a people-loving pastoral heart, so I can't help but get attached to my customers, usually. Sometimes, uh, you know, I'm in their house for a couple months, and that's more than enough time for me to fall in love with people. And so there's always this moment where I finish the project, the final bill's been paid, and we stand there awkwardly like, okay, well, I guess that's it then. I guess we have to break up now. Like, you know, you can't keep up with all your old customers, and it's it's weird. After pouring my blood, sweat, and tears into the project and these people to just hand it over for someone else to to run and care for. And I really don't think, uh, I really do think there's some reluctance here on Nehemiah's part to hand these keys over. And here's why. Listen to this. He said, do not leave the gates open during the hottest part of the day. And even while the gatekeepers are on duty, have them shut, the, shut and bar the doors. Appoint residents of Jerusalem back as guards, everyone on the regular watch. Some will serve as sentry posts and some in front of their own homes. So can you hear what Nehemiah is doing here? Can you say micromanage? Uh, and this is real because I've done this. I've remodeled kitchens before for a total stranger. And a job's done and I'm like, okay, well, make sure you don't put any, you know, citrus on that granite. And uh, I wouldn't clean that grout with with a bleach-based cleaner. And after a couple days, check the sink because sometimes when you fill an empty a sink, it'll start to leak a little. And you don't want that to leak on the new cabinets. I could tell the people are like, dude, we got this. We've We've had a kitchen before. You can leave, but it's uh, Nehemiah has trouble handing it over here. If you've ever watched a design show, um, you've probably wrestled with this. They show these 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 pictures. The opening pictures are usually this house in in kind of disarray or with like no decor anywhere, and then they finish and everything's perfect. And there's way too breakable decorations everywhere in this kid house and and you're watching them, you know, reveal this final room, and you're like, this is going to last about three minutes before this thing looks, you know, the way it did before. Esther and I used to watch this organization show where they'd go in. It was basically for, like, hoarders, and they'd go in and gut a room and organize it all up and put it all back together, and we would, like, bet each other, like, how long do you think this is going to last? Like, I'm going two weeks, and then this thing looks the way it did before. Well, we can definitely see uh, anxiety in Nehemiah, because in verse 2, he hands over all responsibility. And in verse 3, he's still bossing everybody around. Like he's still saying, okay, you know, make sure you do this, make sure you do that. Um, but Nehemiah does give the leaders some great advice here at the end of this project that I think we need to consider as we kind of close this story, this uh, this study out. Um, and I thought what I'd do here is kind of break this down into a good old-fashioned three-point message. I don't do these often, but it's not bad to sneak one in every once in a while. So point number one. Once the work is done, don't undo it. Once the work is done, don't undo it. Seems common sense, but listen to what Nehemiah says. I said to them, do not leave the gates open during the hottest part of the day. And even while the gatekeepers are on duty, have them shut and bar the doors. Appoint the residents to act as guards, everyone on a regular watch. Some will serve at sentry post and some at the front of their own homes. Nehemiah says, don't leave the gates open, even if it's hot. Don't leave the gates open, even if you have a lookout on duty. Walled cities are hot. Unfortunately, any wall tall enough to block out an an enemy is also tall enough to block the wind. And so these walled cities would get very hot. So during the hot part of the day, it was pretty common to want to open the gates up. There was gates all over the city eight or ten of them, and you'd get a cross breeze that would blow. These gates were basically big timber garage door kind of things that had smaller doors cut into them for human traffic. So when it was hot, it was pretty common to throw the gates wide open so you could get a cross breeze blowing through the city. Perfectly normal to open the gates, but imagine Nehemiah's position. He just watched God motivate a foreign pagan king to fund the work of God. He watched a bitter, bickering, disgraced people decide to cooperate and work hard together to do a wonder. He stood down enemies, shattered ancient oppression. He escaped traps and threats and the last thing he wants is to walk away from this finished product and have them leave the gate standing wide open. Because honestly what good is a wall if you leave the door wide open? So he's He's basically telling them, now that we've done the work, now that we've secured the city, don't leave the don't leave the gates standing open. Don't leave your defenses down. And we might, you know, click our tongues at, at people who would do that. We might st- think when we stand with Nehemiah and say, who would do that? Who would build up this wall and then leave it unlocked? But how many of us do that every day. How many of us simultaneously gripe about the garbage that comes in with the internet while greatly enjoying the breeze that it brings in as well? The comfort and convenience. And I'm preaching it myself here. We are Jerusalem. All the time we, we sacrifice important things for a little bit of comfort, for a little bit of safety, for a little bit of, of blessing. Nehemiah knows human nature. He knows they've worked hard to get this wall up, and to give up that now would be foolish. If you've ever been to my house, you've uh, you've met Bella. Bella is a 160-pound Great Pyrenees who is uh, harmless, even though she has a huge bark that's terrifying. She eats too much, sheds too much, and produces too little. The only reason I keep her is I have teenagers who also eat too much, shed too much, and produce too little. And they get to stay, so it only seems right. The way I wound up with Bella was uh, very similar to what Nehemiah is saying here. We had completed about a $300,000 remodel project on this house in Prairie Village. And a pretty big chunk of the damage we were fixing was from Bella. She, uh, She had lived there. A lot of it was while she was a puppy, but she was still very hard on the house. But she had this huge, deep, you know bark. And so when they would try to put her out of the house, make her an outside dog, she'd bark to the point that the neighbors would call the police. And so they'd have to let her in. And when she came in, she ate the house. And so they had a problem with Bella. And I remember watching the point where these homeowners had dumped a ton of money into redoing this house. It was gorgeous. And they're looking at Bella in a whole new light. Like, how in the world do we let this dog back in, you know, now that we've fixed all this that's kind of what Nehemiah's doing here. Now that we've fixed all this, how do you leave the gates open? Don't leave the gates open. So we wound up with Bella. And she's actually a pretty good dog, but don't tell my kids I said that. So Nehemiah tells the Israelites not to undo the work they've just done. This seems common sense. But how many of us have had amazing moments with God? These huge amazing moments with God where, where God touches us and and, and, and convicts us and shows us something and, and really grabs a hold of our heart and makes us think. And we have this amazing moment and we love it and then it's over and we're like, okay, we're we going for lunch. Man, if God does a work in us, if God reveals something to you, write it down. Do the soul work. Set some time aside to, to chew on that. Ask the hard questions. What does that mean to me? What, what do I need to change? I mean, if, if the God of the universe showed me this, how do I just go back to normal? Once he puts up a wall, don't leave the gate open. Once he does a work, don't undo it. Esther and I've actually gotten in the habit of telling each other when God is speaking to us so that there's some accountability there. So you've, you've kind of put it out there in the universe so that they can come to you in a couple of weeks and go, how's that going? How are you? What are, you, what, are you, what are you digging up? What are you finding? Once the work is done, don't undo it. Point number two, when the work seems done, it's not. Listen to what Nehemiah writes. At that time, the city was large and spacious, but the population was small, and none of the houses had been rebuilt. If I'm honest, I absolutely hate Nehemiah for writing that. This is something Esther and I have wrestled with forever. I'm one of those people that when I do finish a project... I like to sit back for a while and breathe and like maybe even throw a party that we finish that project, like celebrate. And I kid you not, the last nail goes in and Esther goes, so what are we going to do on the back porch? I'm like, can I take two seconds to, to look at this one before we plan the next one? I think Nehemiah's observation only comes with age and experience. He's simultaneously recognizing that God has just done a wonder and that there's still more work to do. There's always more work to do. I wish I could get back all the years I've spent looking for the fix, like the answer, the big one. Like if I could just pay off this bill, I would be all good forever. If we could just get everything organized just right with a place for everything and everything in its place, we would never have a mess again. Then we would finally have it all organized just right in the house. would no longer get messy. I could just get that promotion or that raise, we'll finally be able to relax. If I could just stop committing that one sin, I'll finally be holy enough to feel worthy of God's love. In fact, I think this is what Peter does on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and it says that Jesus suddenly was he was shining white, and Moses and Elijah show up and and in this crazy glorious moment Peter has the audacity to speak, which always makes me feel like I was a lot like Peter, because I'm I would speak in that moment, which you shouldn't speak in that moment. In fact, when God's (laughs) I love when God does finally speak, he said, This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. I think what he was saying was Peter, shut up and listen for once. But what Peter does when he sees When he sees Jesus and Elijah and Moses shining on the mountain, he said, this is it. Let's build a temple. Let's build a shrine. Let's park right here. This is the moment. We need to put up something to remember this moment forever. This is it. Let's freeze this and stick here. But Jesus, he goes through this incredible moment and then he comes down the mountain and goes back to work. Because when you think the work is done, it's not done. We have this mantra at Open Table. We say it all the time. And that's that the Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. This is something that we're going to do forever. When, you, uh, when God does a work in you, take it seriously. Lean into that. Do the deep soul work. And when you're done, please know that God is already locked and loaded with your next project that he wants to do in you. I hear all the time, you know, I'm a fairly new Christian or, or I'm, I'm really new to all this, so bear with me. And all I can think when people say that to me is I've been seriously seeking and following God, you know, for about 30 years. and I feel like I'm more of a newbie than ever. Like I feel like I'm just starting to figure some things out and I got a long way to go. When you're doing life with the most amazing and complex being ever, there will never come a day when you feel like you finally got it figured out and you're all good. You will be a newbie forever. There's always more work to do. When the work seems done, it's not. And point number three, the work you do is bigger than you. Let's look back at the text. After the wall was finished and I'd set up the doors and the gates and the gatekeepers and singers and Levites were appointed, I gave the responsibility of governing Jerusalem to my brother Hanani. The work you do is bigger than you. This chapter is... Really just dripping with this point from start to finish. At no point was Nehemiah working for his own comfort or convenience. I mean, think back to the beginning of the book. Nehemiah had this cushy job in the palace. He was he spent every day next to the king. You can't get cushier. Nehemiah isn't building this walls this wall and fighting enemies and dodging threats and combating injustice for himself. He had an easy life. He was privileged. Nehemiah did all this work for others. And that's because the work was bigger than him. I lo- I love how Nehemiah deals with the completion of the wall. He says, "So my God gave me an idea. I found a genealogical record of those who had first returned to Judah." So basically what Nehemiah does is he he looks backward even as he looks forward. He's handing the keys to whoever's going to run it when he leaves. He, he sets them up for the future. He plans on what's going to happen next. He sets up Hanani to run things once he's gone. But in doing that, he also looks back and he, he reads the genealogy of people who showed up in Jerusalem 100 years ago. Think about it. Nehemiah has already pointed out the next project. He said there's still houses to rebuild. You've got more work to do. There's a future Here, But then he also goes, let's look back about 100 years at the people who started this work. We have a tendency to view Christianity in the context of our personal salvation. Whether or not we go to heaven, whether or not we believe in Jesus and what Jesus did for me. And all those things are valid and true. But when it comes to the work of God, every single one of us, is resting on the benefits of those who worked before us and studied before us and fought before us and debated before us and served God before us. We benefit from the privilege handed down to us and we work and study and fight and debate for those who are going to come after us. Because let's be honest, there's very little that we can do here and now that will truly benefit us. We might be able to affect a few small things, but the majority of the impact you and I might have is for all those amazing miniature humans that are in the basement right now. We work hard so our kiddos can have a strong, healthy, vibrant faith community to be a part of. And This goes countercultural to most of what the typical church does today. Today, most churchgoers are consumers. We seek churches that meet our needs and make us feel good, rather than creating something strong and healthy for generations to come. True strength comes from understanding that we are part of a very big story. We stand on the shoulders of those who came before us, and we desire to hand our kids something vibrant and living. It's not about us. We don't rebuild walls so we can duck behind them. We rebuild walls so that, like Nehemiah, we can hand them over to someone else. I believe the greatest thing that we could ever do is to find ourselves in the story of God. We pray it over our kids every week that we could find ourselves in the story of God because our life is not about us. I promise you, being a bit player in the story of God is much bigger life. It's a much bigger life than being the star player in your own story. Think about it this way. Would you rather have 100% of my net worth or 0.01% of Bill Gates' net worth? You take Bill Gates' net worth times 0.0001. Would you rather have 0.01% of his net worth or 100% of mine? That's an $11 million question. Being a bit player, being a tiny part of the story of God is infinitely bigger than being the main player in your own story. The work we do is much Bigger than us. So how do we respond to that? It's my personal belief that the world desperately needs the church. More today than ever. We we say all the time that the world needs God, that people need Jesus. And all that's absolutely true. People desperately need to have a personal encounter with God, no doubt. But we also know in our guts that no, at no point in history has the entire world decided to believe and follow Jesus at the same time. For us to, to hope for that, to hold out for that, would be like Nehemiah sitting back and waiting for God to personally rebuild the wall. If we want to make the world a better place, what we really need is for God to inspire his church to get to work. For God to inspire his people, you, me, a million more like us, to get up and start rebuilding. One of my favorite parts of being a part of the work of God is the strange cooperation that it, that it is between God and us. I, uh, I actually love the drive through western Kansas to Colorado. I know a lot of people don't. But, uh, and the mountains are inspiring. I love the mountains. I always feel closer to God when I'm in the mountains. But something about that drive through western Kansas is this metaphor in my life that I really think, uh, affect, like I, I probably think of it almost every day. And that's this fact. that Anybody who's ever done any farming knows that if you don't work your butt off, nothing happens. If you don't get out and, and, and break the, the ground and plant and and weed, and fight pests, and harvest, you get nothing. It takes a lot of work to farm. But any farmer who's ever faced drought or flood knows that you can work as hard as you want, and if God doesn't do his part, nothing happens. Every time I I drive through western Kansas and I see, you know, thousands and thousands of acres, every inch of it has a fence around it or shows some sign of cultivation or has an animal on it. Like it, it's this strange cooperation between God and man that, 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 that is farming. And something about that inspires me because that's what the work of God is like. If we do nothing, nothing happens. If we don't work our butts off, nothing happens. And if God doesn't show up, nothing happens. There's no amount of work that can make amazing things happen Without God. It takes this strange cooperation between God and us. And I think that's what the world needs is a church that's alive and awake and working to rebuild. And a God who is behind us and driving the work. Our world is a mess. We like Nehemiah are facing rubble and disgrace. And what we need is for God to do his part and for the church to do her part. We need to rebuild. So, we need to start right where we are. On the part of the wall that's directly across from our house. We need to love God and love people. We need to love our kids. We need to love our next door neighbor, our coworkers, Even people on Facebook. We need to shine love. Wherever we can, whatever piece of the wall is, is within our reach, we need to start building. We need to find a good cause. Shine some love in that. In fact, next week my friend Kaylee George is coming to speak to us. She's the director of this inner city Christian school called Urban Christian Academy, which Open Table supports monthly. They're committed to bringing quality education to inner city kids who have basically zero educational opportunities, which means zero, you know, real options for success. In life, so Kaylee has chosen to try to rebuild the wall in the Ivanhoe neighborhood in Kansas City's east side. So maybe tune in next week and and ask yourself, can I help rebuild an Ivanhoe? Or maybe the food pantry right here in Wellsville, or maybe stop fighting on Facebook and spread some love and positivity. I know there's. Fights to be fought. I know we have to keep a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, but we've got to keep the trowel moving. Do some good. We've spent a lot of time over the last eight weeks talking about Nehemiah, but in truth, the builder that we follow is Jesus. Because we, like Nehemiah, were broken and disgraced. And Jesus saw our condition and, and loved us. He left heaven and entered the wreckage of our world. And he chose to do everything differently. Every empire that had ever been built did it by leveraging power and and spending human life like currency. But Jesus built differently. He loved. Jesus came and rather than fighting the power structures with force of arms in a strange backwood part of Israel which was an insignificant backwood part of the Roman Empire. He had no wealth, no fame, no military might, just love. One human interaction at a time, Jesus just kept building and building and building. And then he paid for the work with his own blood and gave us a blueprint to keep building. And that is the work we've been called to to keep working on that same building. We didn't start this work and we certainly won't finish it. We just build. We do our part in this story that is much bigger than us. So the way I want to close today is, you know, I I close every service with this benediction that is ancient, probably 3,500 years old. God told Moses, when the priest comes out, have him bless the people of God this way. And and God gave Moses the exact words that I pray over us every week. It's called the priestly blessing. And I don't know if you know what Elevation Church is, but it's this monster church. And during the quarantine, um, when uh, basically they had no other options, they... Uh, they, they wrote this song and people all over the world had covered it on YouTube and they took pieces of that and other pieces of Elevation Churches all over the world, sent in clips and they pieced those together. It's kind of an interesting look at our times because we've all seen Zoom meetings now with thousands of little faces and, and so they took this 3,500 year old prayer, they blended it with our modern technology and what's happening exactly right here today. And, uh, and came up with this video. So I want to close with this video, and then I'm probably not going to say anything else because I've yet to make it through this video without crying, so you don't need to see me blubber at the end. So we'll, we'll just close out with this video. It's just a little bit long, but, uh, but bear with me. And sing along, if you will.